All right, good morning. I appreciate this opportunity to speak to you this morning. First of all, I want to say a great big and hearty thank you for voting a couple weeks ago to begin supporting us. That comes as a great blessing and a huge encouragement to Anna and I as we set our eyes, set our sights, so to speak, on the mission field and prepare to start heading that direction. So you're definitely a huge ministry to us in that way, and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. The title of our message this morning is, Do the Affairs of Christ in this World Concern You? Or, you could word that another way, is the business of the Lord Jesus Christ your business? Is his business the business of your life? Our message is going to come from Philippians chapter 2 this morning, but before we go there, I would like to set the stage, like to set the stage, so to speak, by reading a couple other passages. So if you would go to these passages with me for a minute, we'll get to Philippians chapter 2 eventually. So our first passage is in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. <clears throat> Excuse me, 28. Towards the end of uh, Christ's ministry, before he was crucified, uh, <clears throat> he went through a time when men who opposed him came and asked him a series of questions, tempting him, trying to trick him. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 28, the Bible says, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first, the greatest, the chiefest of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love His neighbor as Himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered discreetly, He said unto Him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of A little while later in the upper room with his disciples in John chapter 14. Jesus said to his disciples, beginning in verse 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. 
because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas said unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. And then lastly, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul speaks under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, that, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have no charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Seeketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things. Hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you so much that you have loved us and that you've sent your Son so that we could be restored to you and live with you even now in this life. And Father, I pray that you would take your word. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit and help me to speak what I ought to speak this morning. And would you take your word and would you encourage our hearts and would you use it to turn our eyes on you and teach us to live loving you more. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We can go in our Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2. Now that we've set the stage with those passages. In the first passage, a scribe came to Jesus, and he asked him, Master, what is the first commandment of all? And Jesus told him, the chiefest of all God's commandments is that you love the Lord your God with everything, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the heart behind all the laws of God. It is what, at the end of the day, he is after. 
Later in John chapter 14, Jesus explained to his disciples, if it is true that you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, what I say will be valuable to you and you will want to please me. In 1 Corinthians there, we read that the characteristics of what love is, what it looks like. And in that list, we found the phrase, love seeketh not its own. Love is not preoccupied with its own good, but is concerned mostly, chiefly, with the good or the advancement of someone else. In this passage in Philippians chapter 2, we have a simple yet profound lesson from the life of Timothy on how loving God plays out in a man's life. Christ in the state of his affairs in this world ought to be central in the mindset of the Christian. This results in genuine unselfish concern in the affairs and well-being of those whom Christ loves. As a Christian, the purpose of my life is to advance the business of the Savior whom I love. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, the Bible says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus, this is Paul speaking, to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus, which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. This passage in Philippians is perhaps not the most well-known passage of that letter, but it nevertheless contains a profound thought that I would like us to meditate on this morning. This section of the letter, beginning in in verse 19, is uh, somewhat abrupt, and some have struggled to see how it fits in with what Paul is trying to teach the Philippians in the letter. Uh, to the point that some who would look at the who look at the Bible through more critical glasses would find evidence here of Philippians being a compilation of two or more letters that someone at some time later than Paul squished together into one. But uh, actually, such criticism is unfounded because what Paul is talking about here fits very well with what he is trying to teach the Philippians throughout the letter. One of the central concerns of the letter to the Philippians is that Christians operate with the right mindset, a mindset that glorifies God. And throughout the letter, Paul is teaching the Philippians, and he wants them to embrace this mindset. Uh, Paul himself exhibits this mindset that he wants the Philippians to understand as he begins to talk about earlier in the epistle in chapter 1 about what is, how things are going with him, what is the state of his affairs. 
And in Philippians chapter 1, after he greets the church and after he gives them a report on how he is praying for them, he lets them know what's up with him. And in verse 12 he says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Paul was in prison. He was in Rome under house arrest. And he tells them here that this imprisonment um, has resulted in the advancing of the gospel even though he is chained up and cannot move around. And he says, this is how it happened. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. The other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. <clears throat> and there I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. So Paul relates what is happening to him in Rome and his response to it through the circumstances he, f he finds himself in. Even though these are not personally advantageous, he rejoices because the business of his Savior, the spread of the gospel, is advancing in spite of the fact that he's in jail and he wants the Philippians to rejoice with him. You know, there are different ways Paul could have responded to that circumstance in his life. He could have become bitter and upset at God, which sometimes people do when circumstances in our life go in a way that we would rather than not. Paul wanted to visit Rome. That was an earnest desire of his heart, but I don't think he really wanted to do it chained up. So here he finds himself, he's in chains, but... He's finding that even though he's chained, the business of his Savior is going forward, and because of that, he can rejoice. Because that's the central concern of his life, he can rejoice. As the letter goes on, he exhorts the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 27, "...only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent..." I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. In these verses, Paul exhorts the Philippians to have that same mind that he had, that they all, be, they all <clears throat> stand fast in one spirit and be <clears throat> to me, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel is to be the cause for which they are striving the cause that their lives are centered around, even though they are experiencing persecution for it. And as he goes on, 
he lifts up, he exhorts them that, in chapter 2, that they fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He exhorts them that they live a life that is characterized by being, instead of primarily concerned with themselves, to live a life that is concerned with others, as Christ Jesus lived. And then in this famous passage, he describes the Lord Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took on him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in, the, in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Je Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and earth, and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, and what a day that will be. <clears throat> so, what Paul is saying here, in here about Timothy, whether he intended it or it is indirect, fits in with, how he, with what he is trying to teach the Philippians. <clears throat> that Timothy is brought up here, hard on the heels of the example of Christ, is no whim of Paul or evidence of later smashing together of different letters. He is a further example of the mindset of Christ that Paul is trying to teach them. So Paul in verse 19 says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort, when I know your state, or how things are going with you while I'm sitting here in jail. So, a good question to ask as we consider this verse is, why Timothy? Why was it Timothy that Paul wanted to send to the Philippians? Well, in the next verses, he explains that. In verse 20, he says, For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. It has been said that in these verses, following Paul's statement of his hope to send Timothy to the Philippians, that this, these verses contain one of the highest com, excuse me, commendations possible. Paul is very complimentary in the way he speaks of Timothy. Without question, Timothy is a very significant person in Paul's ministry. Uh, actually, Acts records that as a, upon a positive report of him from the brethren at Lystra and Iconium, Timothy became one of his helpers on the second missionary journey, and their relationship proved to be long and lasting. Here Paul says it's Timothy he hopes to send because he has no one else of the same mind of Timothy. Now there is a little exegetical difficulty at this point. Uh, there are some who favor uh, interpreting Paul as saying here, I have no one else like Timothy of the same mind as me. In other words, Timothy has exactly the same mind that I have towards you. Or, I have no one else of the same mind as Timothy. In other words, Timothy has this mind towards you, and <clears throat> there's no one else I have like him. 
Um, either way you take it, I think the point of this statement, um, we, we can, it, it's basically the same. The point of the statement is the exclusiveness of the mindset and passion that Timothy possesses. And even if you take the second interpretation, the Bible is very clear that Timothy was of one heart and mind with Paul, who was his mentor. Paul is stating, especially in light of the next verse, that he has no one else to go to Philippi who will approach the situation like Timothy. What this like-mindedness that Timothy has entails ought to be understood from the following descriptions of Timothy. The first clause describes specifically what Paul is looking for and whom he will send to Philippi, who will naturally care for your state. Paul says Timothy is a man that will genuinely take up a godly concern for how your life is going. He sincerely cares for how your Christian life is going. And it's important to note the object of Timothy's care. His, the object of his care was the good of the Philippian Christians, not his own. This becomes even more clear in the next verse, in verse 21 where Paul begins to talk about other men. And in this verse he says, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. This is a highly significant statement. It's very negative, but it's also, again, accompanied by interpretative difficulty, and that is who exactly are these all men that Paul is talking about? And there's different ways men have interpreted this verse. Uh, anything from <clears throat> he's speaking, he's exaggerating to make a point, to he's speaking of all men generally. Maybe he's talking about all his associates, or perhaps all of those available to him in Rome to send on a mission to Philippi. And I believe if you consider the evidence in Philippians, and how he speaks of other people he worked with elsewhere is most likely the last one that he means. He's speaking of all the men that he had available to him in Rome that he could send to check up on the Philippians. Uh, evidence of this is notice that he says <clears throat> in verse 20, I have, not I know, no man like-minded. In other words, I have with me. And this, would, this position would seem further supported by the fact that elsewhere in Philippians, you know, he speaks highly, as we read in chapter 1, of believers there in Rome who were preaching the gospel with the correct motive. And he follows this immediately with a highly complimentary description of Epaphroditus. So he is speaking here of those he has available with him to send to Rome, I mean to Philippi. But he says there's a problem. They all seek their own. And Timothy is the option that stands out for this sad reason. The significance in this, of this statement lies in what it implies about Timothy. In contrast to these others, Paul indicates that Timothy does live a life with Christ in his affairs 
as opposed to his own. In other words, Timothy is one that does seek the things of Christ Jesus, not his own. And based on what we read at the beginning of the message, you could read, that, read this verse this way. Timothy loves Jesus. These other men love themselves. And this is evidenced by what they are seeking, by what they are spending their lives pursuing, by the business that preoccupies them. The one are seeking their own things, the, thing, the things that advance them, the things that advantage them. Timothy, on the other hand, is a, is a man whose life is centered around Jesus. And the preeminent, the preeminent concern of his life is that the cause of Jesus Christ advances. Notice in verse 22 that Paul gives tangible proof to the Philippians that this is the case. He says, but ye know the proof of him that as a son with the father, he hath served with me in the gospel. The Philippians had tangible proof of Timothy's heart towards them because they had seen how he served, or you could translate that word slaved, and endured hardness with Paul for the gospel among them. Timothy is not like the others Paul has just described. He genuinely cared for the Philippian state, these people that he and Paul had brought the gospel to, and in doing so, he cared for the things of Christ. Because Timothy loved and cared for the Philippians, he loved and cared for the things of Christ. Paul states that the Philippians know the evidence of Timothy's genuine heart towards the things of Christ and care for them. And this evidence is the Philippians had seen Timothy in action. He had come to Philippi there on the second missionary journey with Paul, and he had weathered the storm there with him. Things were not always unpleasant on Paul's missionary journeys, but Timothy proved himself faithful and stuck with Paul through perilous times. You know, being a traveling companion of the, of the Apostle Paul was not always the safest thing. And uh, we talked about this some in Bible Hour with the men, but uh, Paul had many different adventures as he traveled around the Roman Empire and he talks in one of his epistles about even at one point of despairing of life. Life was not always easy, and Timothy, as the faithful companion of Paul, went through those things with him. Um, if Timothy lived in the 21st century, he would have trouble buying life insurance with Paul because what they did was not always the safest thing. <clears throat> Paul gives the substance of the known proof by describing Timothy as having slaved with him in the gospel. The idea of having slaved, that word translated slaved, is a strong one and uh, indicates at least to act, if you're not actually a slave, it means at least to act or conduct oneself as in total service to another. So Paul describes the attitude of Timothy as he traveled around with him and engaged in missionary work with him that Timothy was one that took his life 
and invested it completely in service to the mission that he was accompanying Paul on. That was, that was the center concern of his life, the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And this is why Paul tells the Philippians that he, wished, he hopes to send Timothy to them. You've probably made the connection by now, but <clears throat> there's a reason we started with the passages that we started with. Jesus said the greatest commandment that God ever gave was that you love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That you love God with your entire being. And Jesus said what that love looks like is when you keep my commandments. Or if we could draw on Paul's description in 1 Corinthians, it's when you seek the well-being of someone else. And in the case of Christ, what would that look like? If I love Christ, if he is the central concern of my life, how does that flesh out? Would not at least part of it look like the thing that my life is preoccupied with being the thing that Christ is preoccupied with. The central concern of my life being the central concern of his life. In the end, the passage is not evidence of multiple letters smashed together. It rather plays a teaching by example role that fits in well with Paul's purpose in writing Philippians. Timothy stood of an ex as an example of what it means to live out the heart of Christ, genuinely concerned for how others were doing in their relationship with Christ. In application, a love for God with one's entire being manifests itself with a preoccupation with a genuine concern for the advance of Christ's cause in this world and the well-being of the people who are, in fact, Christ's cause. This is lived out when a man gives up life he could have spent on himself and spends it under the dictates of what is necessary to advance Christ's mission and promote the gospel living of others. You know, God has given each of us a wonderful gift, and that is life. Life is a truly wonderful gift. But with the gift of life, God has also given us another gift, and that is the gift of choice. God didn't make us robots. He didn't pre-program us to love him and serve him. He wanted us to choose that. And... Uh, he wanted us to choose to make him and his mission the primary concern of our lives. And to illustrate practically what, I, what I've been trying to communicate this morning, I want to relate 
um, two sermons that I heard once. And actually, these sermons I heard from African men when I was in Cameroon a few years ago. And I think the point these, men's were make, these men made in their challenges very aptly describes what we're talking about here. One sermon I heard actually in the church that Anna grew up in, and the pastor was preaching on the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer. And he pointed out that, you know how that begins, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The pastor pointed out that instead of genuinely seeking God's will in this life, sometimes people approach life with the mindset of having their own plans and desires and then try to add God to the equation, hoping that God will bless their plans, their concerns. This would be the opposite of the mindset we are talking about. God is not the divine vending machine. He is not the magic button that makes life work. He's God. He is the Lord. He is the master. And the second one, actually, I've shared with you before a while back. This was actually preached by Pastor Felix, whom we support. And this was just as we were getting ready to trek out into the bush to preach the gospel in different villages. And uh, I remember he preached on the uh, end of Revelation. He was trying to encourage us as we were heading out. And he talked about the passage where God promises one day to wipe away every tear from people's eyes. And he made the point that, you know what, in that more difficult environment, we would experience pain and discomfort as we went out to minister in the different villages, but then he brought out the fact that, you know what, we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it so that one day these people we are preaching to can have every tear wiped away from their eyes. Christ and the state of his affairs in this world ought to be the central in the mindset of the Christian. This results in genuine, unselfish concern for the affairs and well-being of those whom Christ loves. And, uh, you know, as we think about that truth, I cannot help but apply it in this way, that the work of missions ought to be a central concern in each and every one of our lives, even if we are not actually the ones who go. The work of missions is this. It is spreading the gospel around the world, reconciling lost men to God, and teaching them to live with him in his ways. And this is the business of Christ. That is what brought Christ down from heaven, from the glories of heaven, to this earth in the form of a servant. Jesus said, For this, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Hebrews 12 says this about the Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy that caused Jesus to endure the cross? 
In Revelation 5, the Apostle John gives us a glimpse into heaven. And this is what he writes. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The treasure that brought Jesus from heaven and the worship and the adoration that he rightfully deserved to earth in the form of a servant was people from every nation, every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That is why he came. That was the mark that his life was fixed on. That is why, before he ascended back into heaven, he gave the great commission to his disciples. He said, teaching them to observe all things. Excuse me, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. If this is what brought the Son of God from heaven, and we actually believe that to be true, how can the spread of the gospel around the world not be a primary business of our lives? In application, I'd like to ask you some practical questions, and that, is, and that is this. Are you, if Jesus came so that all kindreds, tribes, and tongues could have the gospel, are we aware of what tribes, of what kindreds, of what languages, of what tongues don't have the gospel yet in our generation? Or that don't have the Bible in their language? Does that information concern us, or do we never give it a second thought? Do we care to look into that, to research and find where the gospel has not gone? When a missionary comes through the church and speaks of a place that God has called him to and gives statistics, he says, I'm going to such and such a country, and there are this many million people And this percentage of them is Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or Catholic. They've believed a lie 
that Satan is using, on the, is using in their lives to keep them on the road to hell. And we're going to this country, we're going to this place to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in Christ. We are going in order to, on some, have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. When he gives those numbers, does that information concern you? Or does it roll off of you like water off a duck's back? Does it burden you to do something about it to help that man? To help him succeed in the mission that God has called him to? You know, not everybody has the ability or the calling to get on a plane and go to a foreign mission field. But you know one very, very important way that every Christian can be involved in advancing the gospel around the world is praying for your missionaries. Um, prayer is not an insignificant thing. Prayer in and of itself is an interesting thing because you look at it and you wouldn't think it was all that powerful. You don't seem to be doing anything. You're just sitting there talking to God. But that's the whole point. You're talking to God. And God is the one who has all power and ability. And over and over again, he promises to interfere, to step down into the affairs of earth in response to the prayers of his people. So whenever a missionary sends you a prayer letter, he's sending you a prayer for help. He's saying, help me. Bring these things before the Lord. You know, it was interesting. I was reading a, a book recently by another independent Baptist missionary. And uh, I came across something he said that uh, convicted me. And he was writing about um, churches praying for the missionary. And he says this, during our deputation ministry, we offered an email prayer letter sign-up sheet on our display table. We have done the same thing each furlough and have added each personal request to our address list. And then he goes on to say, eventually, they switched to a different uh, email software where he could just send all the emails out, all the prayer letters out with a click of the button. And uh, the software actually gives him statistics back about what happens to those emails. And he says, the discouraging feature of the report was to learn that more than half of our prayer letters are never opened. He said, on average, only 45% of the emails we send out are ever read. The emails were arriving in inboxes rather than spam folders, but they were still not being opened. Here I was thinking that almost a thousand people were praying for us every time I sent out an update. In reality, the, the majority are, of our updates and prayer requests were not ever being read. A 
prayer letter is a plea for help. And yet, as this missionary has pointed out, sometimes we don't do a lot with those things. Um, you know, sometimes we might not bother to open it. Maybe sometimes we'll open it and read it, and it's more like a social media post where we just read it to see what's going on with them, and then we don't give it a second thought. Or maybe we read it critically and think things like, well, what's wrong with this missionary? He's been on the field a year already, and he hasn't planted 25 churches yet. Um, And when we do things like that, we may not have this in our mind, but in effect what we're doing is we're taking that call for help and we act as if it is of no concern. when if we would take the time to pray in faith and bring the concerns of our missionaries before the Lord, they might see more, they, they would see more fruit in their ministry because of it. If we take the opportunities God gives us to speak the gospel to go, you know, there's coming a day when our lives on this side of eternity will be finished. And I wonder if it will be said of you that Christ was your life, that you spent the days, the hours, the minutes that he gave you loving him, laboring with him, letting him live through you, and that his business and mission in this world was yours. The day is coming when that will be revealed. Let's close in prayer, and then, Pastor, if you would come and close as the Lord leads you. Lord, we thank you for your word and how instructive it is to us. And Lord, I thank you for this example from Timothy's life. Of how if our delight is towards you, if our love is towards you, if our passion is towards you, we can live our lives with your mission at the center of our lives and participate with you in that mission. And Lord, I pray that you would take this truth from your word this morning and that you would revive our hearts, that you would renew our gaze towards you and our love towards you, and that you would put a fervor in our hearts to complete the mission that you have graciously given us. And it is in your name we pray these things. Amen.